but heard it through the grapevine? <laughs> I love me? it. I love it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's because the pastors aren't away. They sang that. Uh, <laughs> That's what it is. No, they got to do the lead. <laughs> so, good morning. My name is Jim Hibden, and this is my wife, Linda. We are so... Thank you. We're so happy to be here today. We've been coming to this church for a year and a half, and we're now members, and we're so proud to be here and to have found New Song Church as our church family. It really is a blessing. You know, we have a real special message from your pastors today. Pastor Grant and Pastor Melody and their families are on a little vacation, well-earned, this week, and they're going to be back next Sunday, and they want to see every one of you back next week. So we're looking forward to having them back, because we sure do miss them. So it's my honor to welcome all of you today, um, it's also, but especially it's my honor to welcome any of you who are here for the first time. Uh, let me call your attention to something you'll see in the, in the chair in front of you. There are three cards. The first one says connect on that. And if you'd be so kind as to fill that out today, if you're here for the first time or you're two or second or third and you haven't done this yet, we want to leave a good record for Pastor uh, Grant and Melody when they get back to so they know that you were here. And the second card says prayer on it. If you happen to have any prayer requests that you'd like to share with the congregation, if uh, you'll just fill that out, we'll um, be sure and take care of that. And then the other one there it has to do with giving. And I think on the screen behind me shortly, yeah, four. tells you how you can give very easily. Linda and I have been tithing actually ever since we were little kids. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember bringing a nickel and then a dime and then a quarter and uh, that kind of thing. Usually my mom gave it to me, but she was, teach <laughs> but she was teaching me I should she be did. giving. And so we've picked that up and we've tithed our whole life and... Uh, we feel like the Lord has, has blessed us for that. But most importantly, it's an act of obedience to what God's Word says. And so if uh, you'd fill any of those, give us any of that information, any of those three cards or all three of them, there's an offering box right outside the door. Whenever you are leaving, it's on your right. And if you'll put those in there, then we'll be sure and take care of that. God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah. Is that original? Next Sunday is Father's Day, and we're going to be celebrating our dads next Sunday, so we want you to bring your dad, if he's still around, if he's in heaven, we're just going to rejoice with you for that. Bring your kids. We're going to have a photo booth outside that you can take a family picture if you would like, and we're going to have treats for the dads. And so it's my privilege to introduce you today to the gentleman who's going to be opening God's word to us. Um, his name is Fuzz, and Fuzz is going to be here shortly. As a member of this church, I want to tell you something really, really important. First of all, he studies the word of God for a living, yes. so thank God for that. But uh, in addition to that, I'd like to direct your attention to that wall. Everybody just look there, and I want you to uh, read that with me, uh, all everybody together. Ready? To be transformed, transformed by, by the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit to, to follow Jesus, Jesus to love, love people, people and, and do, do good. good. As the mission statement of our church, uh, Fuzz believes that. And because he does, uh, pastors uh, Grant and Melody have trusted him to teach us today. 
And so without any further ado, I'm going to ask him to come, and would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for another day to come together and to serve you and to worship you. Uh, we know there's places in the world that people don't get to do that, and when they do, in some places, they have to do it in, the, in secret, in a basement, but there's people under trees, there's people in back alleys, there's people in big cities, there's people in high-rises all over the world who right at this very moment are praising you and worshiping you and gathering around your word. And so we join our voices with all of them today to praise you for the privilege to gather in your name. And we ask your blessing upon the word of God and on our brother as he opens it to us. Pray that you would help us as hearers to be able to hear and then, as your word says, to go ahead and do something about what we hear. So thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your presence, always being with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, it... Uh, probably was one of the most disturbing experiences I've ever had. A few years ago, my wife Amy and I traveled with a small team from New Song Church to Cambodia. We were going to spend about three weeks there uh, serving in a support capacity with a ministry called Agape International Missions, or AIM. And AIM is located in a town called Sui Pak, which is just outside of Phnom Penh. So we, we left on a Friday, arrived on a Saturday, and we had a free day on Sunday before we began our work with AIM on Monday. So we went to church that Sunday morning, Rahab's house, which is a church associated with AIM. And then in the afternoon, we had a little bit of free time, and so we wanted to see a few things in Phnom Penh. And everybody told us that we needed to go to a place called Shang Ek. Shangek was an orchard at one time, but in between 1975 and 1979, the Khmer Rouge, which was a communist regime that took over Cambodia, turned this beautiful orchard into a place for mass executions and a mass graveyard. Estimates are, in a four-year period of time, Probably 17,000 plus people were executed at this site. So this is a picture of Shang Ek, and there is a, a path that you, are, you take through the, through the orchard. It's a sacred place because there are still people buried there. When the Khmer Rouge fell and people went into, into Shang Ek, they unearthed about 8,000 bodies before they stopped. Uh, in the center of Shangek is this Buddhist structure that's called a stupa, and it's a place of meditation that houses relics. And in the stupa is 5,000 skulls of human beings that were recovered from that site. If you question if there's evil in the world, I would invite you to go to the killing fields because you're... You, there's no question that what the Khmer Rouge did to the Cambodian people was just plain evil. There is just no other way to describe it. The Khmer Rouge came into power in 1975. 
Uh, they were a totalitarian communist regime headed up by Pol Pot. And Pol Pot had this vision of turning Cambodia into this communist utopia that was going to be built around an, agr an agrarian culture where everybody was going to work on these collective farms. And so he wanted to isolate Cambodia from the rest of the world. Because it was going to be an agrarian economy, he shut down businesses, he shut down schools, he shut down libraries, he shut down religious institutions, and all of the people associated with these activities were considered to be potential enemies of the state. Anybody that was part of the former government were enemies of the state. And so they would execute people. If you're an enemy of the state, they would execute people. Between the failed economic policies that led to famine and the mass executions, estimates are the Khmer Rouge killed somewhere between a quarter to a third of the Cambodian population. That's over two million people in a span of four years that, were, that wound up dying under the Khmer Rouge. Okay, this was a, a government that, again, was absolutely evil. Now, this government was extremely paranoid. They saw enemies of the state everywhere. And so they set up these detention centers around Phnom Penh that were converted schools that were converted into these detention centers where they would basically arrest people, bring them there, torture them until they confessed, and then they would be executed. And eventually they consolidated all of these torture, all of these detention centers into a place called S21. And we actually, on their last day in Phnom Penh, went to visit S21, which is shown here. Uh, another, it's a memorial to the genocide, the Cambodian genocide. The person who oversaw the, the detention centers was a man named Kang Kek Lu. He was, his nickname was Dutch. And this guy is described as the master of confessions because he elevated torture to a high art form. He was unbelievably brutal, unbelievably cruel, People have recovered documents from S21. He would write notes uh, with what's going to happen to each of the prisoners. Just the most horrific notes that you could imagine. Heartless, cruel. Estimates are he oversaw the torture and the execution of over 20,000 people. And what happens is once people confessed, anybody in their circle of influence was now sus suspected as being an enemy of the state. The, the confessions were most likely bogus, but people eventually confessed because they were tortured. Then they were shipped off by truck at night to Shang Ek, where they were executed in the most brutal of ways. So, in 1979, North Vietnam invades Cambodia, and the Khmer Rouge falls. And so everybody in the, in, that's the leadership of the, of the Khmer Rouge flees out of Phnom Penh to the uh, Thai-Cambodia border, where they set up a shadow government. And that government was actually supported by the Chinese and by the United States, sadly to say. It's a very complex geopolitical time, at, in, uh, which is why the U.S. was supporting the Khmer Rouge. But nevertheless, Dutch was part of that group that was running the shadow government. But he had fallen out of favor with the Khmer Rouge because he 
fail to destroy the documents at S21. And so eventually, this, the Khmer Rouge just kind of disintegrated. It fell apart. But before it fell apart, Dutch came home one day to find his wife murdered, and he suspected that somebody in the Khmer Rouge ordered his execution and his wife's execution, but because he wasn't home, he escaped that. So here he is, he's now horribly depressed because of his, the loss of his wife, and he winds up at a church called the Golden West Cambodian Christian Church. This is a church that was planted by a pastor named Christopher Lapel, who happened to be there uh, carrying out an evangelistic crusade. And so Dutch comes to this church service, he hears the gospel, and he comes forward to Christopher Lapel, and, and he tells him that I've done horrible, horrible things. I don't think my countrymen can forgive me. Christopher Lapel didn't know who he was because Dutch, when his wife was murdered, uh, uh, took on a, a different name, Hang Pin, to, to, to avoid detection so that nobody would know who he was. And so for Christopher Lapel, he basically converted and baptized somebody by the name of Hang Pin, who had some kind of mysterious past. Dutch was a changed person. He became involved in church ministry. He helped to plant churches. He helped to serve relief, in relief agencies that were ministering to the, to the poor in Cambodia. In 1999, a photojournalist by the name of Nick Dunlap recognized Dutch and confronted him, and Dutch acknowledged who he was and turned himself in. And he was arrested in 1999 and charged with war crimes. It turns out he was the only person in the Khmer Rouge who was charged with war crimes. Everybody else evaded arrest and prosecution. He was detained for about 10 years before the war crimes trial began in Phnom Penh. And so this was called the Extraordinary Chambers of the Cambodian Court. During the trial, Dutch, now as a Christian, acknowledged everything that he did. He cooperated with the authorities explaining what happened with the Khmer Rouge, giving all the details and all the information that he could. And then he asked the people of Cambodia to forgive him, expressing deep, deep remorse for what he had done. And he recognized that, that the people of Cambodia probably could never forgive him, but that's what he appealed to. Then he did something that turned everything upside down. He asked the court to release him. And his argument was, one, he'd already been detained for 10 years, two, he was fully cooperative, and three, he wasn't truly responsible for the war crimes because he was operating under the, the, the demands of the leadership of the Khmer Rouge that if he refused to torture and execute people, he and his family would be tortured and executed. That was his argument. And then he pointed out that he is a changed person, that he is no longer the person who ordered the executions of his fellow countrymen at S21, but that he was a changed person because of his Christian faith. 
So suddenly, here's this international war crimes trial, and Christianity is now at the forefront. And when you read the transcripts of the trial, there's this discussion going on in the court about what is Christianity? How do you attain salvation? How do you attain forgiveness? And the court was struggling with this. Part of, some people in the court thought this is just manipulating the court. He's just manipulating the court, trying to get out of uh, going to jail for life. Others thought, well, he probably converted, but it wasn't a, he's not really a changed person. This is just satisfying some deep psychological need he has to, to escape the guilt of what he's done. Uh, the people of Cambodia, particularly the families of those people who lost their lives under the Khmer Rouge, were furious. They were arguing, this is just the easy way out. You become a Christian and your sins are forgiven and that's it. You don't have to worry about anything that you did. Because in Cambodia, the primary system of religion is Buddhism. And it's a, a type of Buddhism that kind of picks up pieces from Hinduism. And so they believe in karma, right? That you, you live a life, you die, you're reincarnated and reborn. And that if you live a good life, when you are reincarnated, you're going to be in a better place. If you live a, a bad life, you're, when you're reincarnated, it's a worse place. And so the people of Cambodia was like, you're, he's just trying to get off easy. He's trying to escape the, basically his karmic debt. And so they were, they were deeply, deeply, deeply upset with what he was trying to do. In fact, Christopher Lapel, who was the pastor that shared the gospel with him, that baptized him, was invited to testify on Dutch's behalf, where he testified to the fact that Dutch was indeed a changed person. This story really highlights something very important, and that is that we may, you may not appreciate this as a Christian, but that salvation in Christianity is unique compared to every religion in the world. This is what this trial is highlighting. Uh, because in every religion of the world, your salvation is based on what you do. It's based on your own efforts and on your own merit. Uh, in Christianity and Christianity alone, our salvation is based not on anything that we do, but it's based entirely on God's grace and mercy and the work of Christ on the cross. There is nothing we do to earn our salvation. Our sins are forgiven not by anything we do, but again by the grace and the mercy and the blood of Christ. That's where our salvation comes from. But in every other religion in the world, you've got to do something. In Judaism, you've got to obey the law. In Islam, your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. And by good deeds and bad deeds, these are not kind things that you do to other people. These are actually things you do to please Allah. In, in Zoroastrianism, which is a minor religion, you have to overcome evil. You have to live a life to overcome evil. Uh, in Hinduism, it's, you, you constantly are working to improve each lifetime, getting better and better and better. In Confucianism, you conform to society. In, in Buddhism, in strict Buddhism, it's all about changing your attitude, changing your desires. But notice, in every one of those instances, you have to do something 
to earn your salvation. Christianity is unique. Christianity is distinct. And it's the only religion in the world where salvation is offered as a gift. And this is something that I hope that you remember, that you always keep in mind as a Christian, that the uniqueness and the power of the Christian faith. And what we're going to find out this morning, the power of the gospel. Uh, As Paul writes to the church at Corinth, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As I interact with non-believers, oftentimes one of the objections to Christianity is this idea that we don't do anything to earn our salvation. It's all a gift that's given to us. For, for most people, this seems to be foolishness. This doesn't make sense because everything that we do in life is somehow earned. And so we have this mindset that we've got to earn God's favor. We've got to earn our salvation. That's the natural human inclination. And so the gospel is really a radical idea It's a radical idea among the world's religions. It's a radical idea in terms of the way that we think about what should our reward and what should our punishments be. Now, this lengthy introduction (laughs) is leading us to the passage of Scripture that we want to focus on this morning, which is Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. So I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, and then we'll spend some time unpacking this really, really rich and powerful passage. passage from Hebrews. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been fully disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now, this is a, a, a rich passage of scripture. Maybe for some of you it seem, may seem a bit esoteric, maybe a bit hard to understand. And what we need to do, first of all, is remember that the, the, the author of the book of Hebrews is writing, as the name of the book tells us, to Jewish believers. And what, one of the things the author was trying to do was to show people how the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ fits squarely within, the, within Judaism. That, that this was actually something that the scriptures foretold, that Christ's ministry on earth was something that the scriptures foretold, and that it was something that their faith and their practices were pointing to. And so what he's trying to do is show, again, how Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection were, again, uh, squarely within the, the, their faith and their practices as Jews. And what was the center of, of, of Judaism was the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was a place where God dwelled. This was the place where the Israelites would interact with God. This is the place where they could come into God's presence. The tabernacle, again, was the, the place where God dwelled. And the, this was a tent that was mobile that the, that the Israelites would carry with them as they went. Again, God gave instructions to Moses on how to build and, and, and to operate the tabernacle. Uh, these are, are found in Exodus, if you're interested in reading them in detail. Uh, and the idea was that this is mobile. This was going to move around with them as they were, as they left Israel. Uh, sorry, left Egypt and were going to the, to the promised land, spending forty years in the desert. And eventually, the, the the temple was built in Jerusalem, which was a permanent tabernacle, the permanent place where God dwelled. So this is a, a, a diagram showing the tabernacle. Um, not the best of diagrams, but it gives it gets the point across. And so you have the tabernacle as a tent, and then the tent is surrounded by a fence, and then the, the, the tribes of Israel would camp around the, around the fence, right? So there would be 12 tri tribes of Israel that would encamp around the fence. So the tabernacle was the center of their encampment. And then there was the outer court where there was a laver where the priests would wash. There was a an altar for burnt offerings, and only the priests could enter into what was called the holy place, the first chamber in the tent. And here in that chamber, it was lit by the menorah, which burned fresh olive oil. There was a table of showbread, which had 12 loaves of bread that were freshly baked, that were changed every Sabbath, uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was a curtain or a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And 
In front of the veil was the altar of incense that was in which incense was burned in the morning and the evening as to represent the prayers of the people to God. Now, the only person that could go into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place was the high priest. And he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And there was an elaborate process that he went through to enter into the most holy place that involved offering a a sacrifice for his sins. And then once his sins were taken care of, he could then offer a sacrifice uh, on behalf of the, the people of Israel to cover their sins. And that the blood of that sacrifice was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, which was a wooden box covered in gold. And there were two angels that sat on top of the, the box. This is called the mercy seat. And the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. So in order to approach God, it involved this elaborate process where only the priest could go on behalf of of the the people of Israel and only the high priests go into the Holy of Holies. And again, it was an elaborate process where there had to be this cleansing that was taking place each step of the process. In this passage, Jesus is referred to as the high priest. And this is not the first time that we hear about Jesus being the high priest in the book of Hebrews. There's two other passages that make reference to Jesus as the high priest. So so what's going on here? How is Jesus able to function as the high priest? And to understand that, we need to understand a little bit about Jesus' nature. Right? Jesus is... Uh, part of the Trinity. He's the Son. He's the second member of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the second member of the Trinity, the Son, took on the form of a human being. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is called the Incarnation, where Jesus is one person, but he has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Theologians will say that Jesus is truly human And he's truly God. In the Gospel of John, John writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And that word there, dwelling, is tabernacle. Jesus came to tabernacle with us. So God's presence is in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, but now something radical has happened. God is coming to tabernacle with us in the form of a person, Jesus, who again is truly God and truly human. And and Jesus lived a life without sin. And so as the high priest, he is uniquely suited to function in that role because he is truly God and truly human. Because he's truly human, he understands our weaknesses, our failings, our limitations, so he can represent us before God. But because he is divine, because he lived a life without sin, he can also represent God to us. And when, because Jesus was without, was without sin, when he died on the cross, he wasn't, his blood wasn't shed to cover his sins, but it was shed to exclusively cover 
our sins. Right? And so Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the perfect sacrifice. But he also can function as the high priest where the blood that, is, that he shed took care of our sins once and for all. That the, 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 the blood of goats, the, the blood of, of, of the bulls were temporary. They just covered our sins. But it's the blood of Jesus that eliminates our sins, that takes care of our sins. And so, but there's more that goes on. It's not just simply that our sins are forgiven now and that we are in a right standing with God, but that we now are able to be reconciled to God and to boldly enter into his presence. As the the Gospel of Matthew tells us, that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, right? Because now the the tabernacle was permanent in the temple, and so the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holies of holies was ripped asunder, symbolizing the fact that we can enter into the holy of holies because we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, right? We are cleansed by the blood of Christ, But the point here is that our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, the fact that we are reconciled with God, the fact that we can enter into God's presence and commune with God because of what Christ did is not anything that we did, right? That's the point of this passage or one of the points of this passage. There's nothing we did. It's all the work of Christ, Our salvation is utterly dependent upon God's grace and mercy and the work of Christ on the cross. And there's incredible power in in this idea that we don't do anything to earn our salvation. Because if we've not done anything to earn our salvation and our sins are forgiven, they're remembered no more, then when people do something to us, we have the power to forgive them. Because if we receive forgiveness, not by our own merit or anything we did, then we can extend forgiveness to those people who have hurt us, whether they actually ask for it or not. They don't have to do anything to earn our forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven, not by our own effort, but by the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. There is incredible power in being able to forgive those people that hurt you. That power leads to reconciliation. It can restore relationships. Being able to forgive people can heal, not only heal the relationships, but it can heal the person who committed the offense and the person who was victimized by the offense. It can bring joy. It can bring peace. There's incredible power in forgiveness. Uh, that we can experience when we fully embrace and fully understand what the gospel is all about. I'm going to bring everything to a close by returning to the story of of Dutch. But this time, I want to talk about Christopher LaPelle. Remember, he's the pastor that that baptized Dutch. Christopher LaPelle was a teenager when the Khmer Rouge came to power. When the Khmer Rouge came to power, they forced everybody in Phnom Penh into the countryside to work in these collective farms. And as a result of that, 
Christopher LaPel was separated from his family, from his mother, his father, his brothers and sisters, his friends, and he spent four years working on these farms under brutal conditions. When the Khmer Rouge fell, he fled to Thailand. He met a missionary who was there at the Thai border, embraced the gospel, ended up meeting a woman who had become his wife, and they somehow made their way to the United States, actually to Long Beach. He went to Hope International University and became involved in a ministry that was focused on taking the gospel to Cambodia. So he was involved in church plants. He was involved in these evangelistic crusades. And again, when he met Dutch, he knew him as Hang Pen. He didn't know who he was. When Dutch was arrested... He wrote a letter to Christopher LaPel telling him who he was. Christopher LaPel was shocked. He couldn't believe it because he later came to discover when he tried to find his family that his father, his mother, one of his brothers, one of his sisters, several of his friends were in S21. And they were tortured by the command of Dutch and they were executed in the killing fields. Christopher LaPel didn't see Dutch for about eight or nine years. In 2008, he had a chance to have a face-to-face meeting with him. And he told Dutch that he forgives him and that he loves him. Christopher LaPel testified to this at the in the extraordinary chambers of the Cambodian court. This is the, the transcript from his testimony. He said, I lost close friends at S21. I lost my parents, my brother, and my sister in the killing fields. When I saw Dutch again in 2008, I told him that I loved him, that I forgave him for what he did to my parents, my brother, my sister, and my close friends at S21. I spoke for myself as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. In that moment, I felt peace. I was filled with joy. When I told him that I forgave him, that I loved him, the healing was mine. I hate the sin, not the sinner. When you are a true believer, when you understand the word of God, you understand what forgiveness truly means. I speak simply as a believer. Can you imagine what it would take to offer forgiveness to somebody that did that to your family, to your countrymen? And this was sincere because Dutch was convicted. He was sentenced to 35 years in prison, which was a life sentence given his age. He died in prison. But Christopher LaPel would go and visit Dutch. He would make sure that he had a Bible. He would pray with him. He would break bread with him and have a meal with him. And they would take communion together. There is incredible power in the gospel. There's incredible power in the blood of Christ. It's not just that our concept of salvation is unique in Christianity. It's true. Only something that's true 
could transform the lives of somebody who was a mass murderer into a humble servant of Christ. And it's only something that's true that would have the power to allow someone to forgive another person for unbelievable evil that that person committed against them. We're going to go into a time of communion. And I'm going to ask you to, to, to think about a couple of things as you go into communion. One is, have you truly, truly embraced the salvation that's offered to you? Are you maybe at times trying to do things to earn your salvation, to please God? Because if you are, you don't have to. Is there something that maybe you've done that you think can't be forgiven? It can be. And is there maybe somebody that you need to forgive? And by doing so, see the power of the gospel unleashed. I'm going to invite you to come up in a few minutes and take communion. And I'm just going to ask you when you get the elements to go back to your, your, your chairs and, and spend some time in reflection. And you take communion on your own when, when you feel it's time. But remember that when we take communion, what we are celebrating is the work that Christ did in this heavenly tabernacle. That we are remembering that, his, that by taking the bread, that his body was broken, that we may be healed. That when we take the cup, we're remembering that his blood was spilled so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be reconciled to God. When we take communion, we're proclaiming the work that Christ did on the cross. We're proclaiming the work that the high priest did on our behalf in the Holy of Holies. So let's go ahead now and uh, take communion together.